Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Well, hello, everyone. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome a very interesting guest who is the creator and the host of the China History Podcast, one of, if not the top China history podcast in the world, Laszlo Montgomery. So Laszlo, thank you very much for joining us on the Reorient podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Jesse. Quite a pleasure to be here. Such big guests you've had, Roddy Chan, <laughs> Alan Zeman, Kevin Kwan, and, and now me. Uh, great to be in that uh, esteemed company. Thanks so oh, much absolutely. for inviting me. <laughs> and we've actually had a, a couple professors, people who are knowledgeable of Chinese history as well. We have Valerie Hansen, who is a professor of early Chinese history at Yale University. And we had uh, Dr. David Zweig, who's a professor of, of Chinese politics. He's now retired, but he is at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. So we really do enjoy learning more about uh, you know, China's history and uh, politics and all sort of aspects going back to the um, earlier period. So uh, you are absolutely the type of guest that we are thrilled to have on the show. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I don't know if I got there bona fide. So, and, uh, you know, one thing that's amazing is you have really your work, you've gone through, it seems so many hundreds of different topics of Chinese history. So how many in total episodes have you done? How many topics have you covered? Yeah, just uh, posted my 286th episode last night on uh, the Tang Empress uh, Zhang Sun. She was uh, the, the the wife of the Taizong Emperor, Li Shermin. So yeah, she was number 286. Amazing. I got Dai Li coming up next. <laughs> <laughs> so for many of our uh, listeners, uh, and we will obviously have a link and we'd encourage them to go check out the China History Podcast, but um, how would you describe the podcast? What's the purpose of the podcast? What's your goal? And, and how does it work? Well, first of all, let me mention the China History Podcast, you know, it's not meant to be an academic show that's looking to make some contributions to, uh, you know, global scholarship of Sinology. You know, I'm not really qualified to be in, in the same room as someone like uh, Valerie Hansen, like, you know, these guests that, that you've had on. You know, most of the sources I use to produce the, the CHP, they're written in English. I, I use Chinese sources on occasion, but you know, even after studying Chinese for more than 40 years, it's still slow going, pouring over certain Chinese sources. But that said, it, 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 there's still a very nice um, ocean of monographs and other books written in English that, you know, have come in handy over the years and been useful for me in producing the show. And, you know, after decades of study, I've managed to build enough of a foundation of general China history, to speak pretty much on any topic that I present. Jeremy Goldcorn of Seneca, sub-China fame, he once referred to the CHP as popular Chinese history. And I think that's a fair statement to make about the program. 
So I'm presenting history more as a form of edutainment rather than as a, you know, as a lecture. But, you know, of course, no matter how scholarly the content is or isn't, you know, it's got to be factual and uh, even more important for in this podcasting world, the material has to be presented in such a way that's somewhat compelling. I would describe your style as you were recounting Chinese history through stories um, and each has a, a theme and you 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 narrate it as if you were telling a story about a certain uh, topic, a certain period, a certain individual. So it is easy to listen to and has a protagonist and, and sort of a plot. And so it makes it for people who might not be historians, scholars, but interested in history, it is a really great way to engage with historical topics. Yeah, there's been a lot of topics that uh, were just great stories, and I did my best to try and uh, uh, make their stories compelling. Some of them are great. I think listeners can hear from your accent that you're likely uh, American. Tell us a little bit about your personal journey, how uh, you grew up and and came to have this particular passion for Chinese history. Well, if you haven't picked up on it yet uh, from this accent, I'm from Chicago. (laughs) So, yeah, thanks to my parents all the books they had in the house and the documentaries they used to make me watch on TV. I had an early appreciation of the world and, you know, which included China. And I hate to admit it, but it was really some of those old yellow face films from Hollywood, the good earth into the sixth happiness flower drum song, all those Charlie Chan uh, movies that, that had a lot of impact on me. As, as a, you know, as a preteen, as a teen. What period of time is this when you had these sort of early introductions to Chinese 1960s, characters you know, and 1960s, culture? 1960s, the U.S. was Hollywood, you know. And so at that point in time, obviously, uh, China was perhaps in the, in the throes or about to enter the Cultural Revolution. It was very close to the outside world, particularly the Western world. There were no relations between the U.S. and China. So there was very limited information coming out of China. So I imagine that when creative producers of, of books or movies, they were doing China, it was based on this limited amount of information that was coming out at the time. Yeah, there was you nothing. Know. There was nothing, you know. When when Beatlemania was at its height, it was like the middle of the Cultural Revolution. Nobody knew anything. China was red China. It wasn't until Nixon in 72, I was 13 years old. It wasn't until Nixon came along that China, for the first time in American society, began to like take this shape and those that were, those were my early gateways, you know, all these old racist yellow face films and Nixon and Life magazine. And- was Nixon's rapprochement with China and then the eventual, you know, there's obviously friendly exchanges and ping pong diplomacy and then uh, and then everything led to eventual normalization relationships, relations between the U.S. and China. But was that sort of opening? Is that what really made you think that? this is a very interesting place that's poorly understood and that in essence compelled you to want to, to learn more and, and, and engage with China. 
Yeah, it was. It really started with Nixon. When Nixon went to China and all the positive press there was, it blew a lot of wind into the sails. And that really fueled my interest. But it was, you know, January 1979, Deng Xiaoping came to the U.S. That was the big thing. And U.S.-China normalization and the beginning of all this China dreaming and I was studying, I was in college from 77 to 81, University of Illinois. And uh, that's when, right after Dung left, it went from all these years of nothing in the press, or relatively little, to all kinds of articles, documentaries, and people were going to China. And we were getting that first look. And so I started studying Chinese in 79 with all that excitement in the wind. And, and you know, one day everything is going to be made in China and uh, Chinese education and business and cultural exchanges and tourism. You know, it was it was people were giddy back then. Yeah, I'm quite jealous because um, I would have loved to have been able to experience the excitement and the anticipation in those early days of the normalization between the U.S. and China. So you started studying Chinese language in college. And, and when did you make your first trip to, to Asia or to China? 1980, I went to Taiwan during the summer of 1980. I stayed there for a couple of months. I studied on some, you know, like China Youth Corps, one of these little propaganda things. And uh, that was my first trip overseas, you know, not including Mexico, but uh, that was my first trip overseas, first trip to Asia. It just, you know, blew my mind. I, I loved it. You know, people said, oh, you know, you better go because you don't know. You know, you're, you're, you're walking down this China path. But what happens if you go there and you can't stand the place? And, but I just, I loved it. And then after that program, I flew to Hong Kong. I had a friend there that I had just met. Still friends with him. I talked to him the other day. Uh, he's, he's living up in Hong Lok Yun. But uh, anyway, uh, he helped me, took me over to Peking Road, booked a tour at uh, Zhonglu, you know, got a China travel service and bought like a two-week tour to China. I'm telling you, man, this was 1980. Amazing. Not even, it was a different, different world compared to now. Uh, went to Guangzhou, Beijing, Jinan, Qingdao. Shanghai. So what were your, I mean, 1980 China, what were a couple things that st stick out or that you retained the most from that trip that most really wowed you or opened your eyes or surprised you? Well, you know, four years out of the Cultural Revolution, everybody was still shell-shocked. But uh, you've heard it before. Everyone's riding bicycles. They all dress the same. And we'd pull up in a tour bus and in 10 seconds flat, there'd be like 300 people surrounding us, pairing in, you know, uh, I, I talked to people, you know, they'd be, they'd be holding the, with their children, their children would like rub my arms and they go, Oh my God, look at this guy's got hairy arms. You know, the, just the curiosity, the mm. intense curiosity and friendliness and welcome that, I received and I, 
I mean, well, first of all, I knew, I said, wow, you know, this is the life for me. I mean, I, I really fell in love. I had, a, it was love at first sight and I knew, all right, I dig it. I'm going to try and get a, I'll graduate next year and I'll try and, and get a China career. Yeah, I spoke enough where I was able to sort of leave the tour and just sort of wander on my own. And it'd be, you know, two seconds flat. I had going on people following me. And, you know, I, I, I met some people and I'd have these one-on-one chats. And when, when the going on people would, would get close, they'd say, oh, you know, don't, don't, don't speak Chinese, speak English. Maybe if you could walk us quickly just through your career prior to starting the podcast, and then we'll, we'll focus on the podcast. So what did you do between your first visit to China in 1980 and, and launching the podcast in a synopsis career-wise? Well, I graduated from college and I moved out to LA because I thought, well, you know, Pacific Rim should be a slam dunk to get that China career going. But you know, 1980, 1980s, nothing like today. Today, you just pick up and go. You come to you come to China. You start teaching English, and then you go find your way into a career. But in the 1980s, forget it. I mean, it was opportunities were very, very limited. You know, China was just getting started. So I eventually, the company I was with, I was with the Flying Tiger Line. I don't know if you remember them. They were, they were an all-air freight airline. FedEx bought them in 89, and they said, you could stick around. I was in computer operations. So we'll move you to Memphis. It's like, well, yeah, I don't know. So I took the severance pay, which was, you know, <laughs> minuscule. I had just gotten married in 88. You know, I said, I'm just going to. I'm just going to move to Hong Kong. And I had a friend out there and I said, you know, damn the torpedoes. I'll just move out there and try my luck. You know, so I moved to Hong Kong and within two weeks I was working. I got a job with a uh, manufacturer, you know, just one of these vanilla uh, OEM manufacturers who did all this private label stuff. But this guy did a lot. He did about $70 million with Kmart. So he was a pretty big cut and sew uh, operation with factories, you know, in Shenzhen, Bao'an. So I just got thrown on the deep end. I didn't know anything, really. I knew nothing. I I just knew how to speak. I knew how to sell. And I knew how to write it from, from my years in management, you know, at Flying Tigers. I knew how to write a coherent report. So I just started at the bottom and, and learned this business. And really over the arc of my entire career, it's all been in manufacturing. Manufacturing in China, consumer products, you know, made in China, stuff that fills the shelves of Walmart and Michaels and Walgreens and Costco and all these guys. That was my that was my world. Ten dollars and ninety nine cents and under. So those. <laughs> well, if you think things. about it, that really was a, a major part of the U.S. China relationship. Was this idea about building factories in China and, and having this 
idle workforce come and produce these inexpensive products that filled the shelves for big box retailers in the U.S. That was a big part of the uh, the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s. And then you had the rise of Walmart and eventually sort of the end of, of Main Street retail in the United States. So it really went to its you know final phase, but that was a big part of what was happening. Yeah, that was... Uh... I mean, that, that was a big part, and that's the part that touched everybody in the country. I mean, not mm. everybody learned about China, but everybody engaged Had something with made in China <laughs> through, their, right, through their purchases <laughs> at, at retail. So that was an interesting career. I, I worked for three guys over, over 35-something years, the two guys in Hong Kong. And then when I moved out to Hong Kong, I moved out in 89. Just a few months after after June fourth, you know, when everyone was telling me, ah, forget it, you know, U.S. and China, it's over, don't don't, there's nothing here, you know, it's it's over and done with. But that didn't last too long. But I learned that I worked for one guy making cut and sew products, and then I was headhunted away to another firm out in the Taipo Industrial Park in uh, paper converting, making stationery, office supplies, back to school stuff. So I basically I spent the whole '90s in Hong Kong, the whole Clinton, I might, the whole Clinton presidency. When I moved back to the states, the the impeachment trial was going on, but it was such a such a historic time living in Hong Kong. I got there. Lord Wilson was the governor, and then Patton. It was such an interesting time to be in Hong Kong, and you know, China was just starting to happen. You know, Gaika Kaifeng. You know, reform and opening up. It was it was just starting to unfold, and people there would you know we talk about you know whoa where's this all going in terms of everything China has become. Back in the nineties, we used to say oh you know that's what it's going to be one day. Sky's right. the limit. Right. I mean, in many ways, it was predictable what China was going to become. It was very clear they had very big ambitions, but they proved that they could achieve many of them, particularly on the economic front. And uh, yeah, you just looked at Singapore and said, uh, extrapolate that up to right. one point something billion people. That's what's going to happen. And so, was, how did you go from this career in the trading business, I don't know, trading, sourcing, et cetera, uh, into deciding you wanted to launch a podcast? Well, it sort of began in 2004, but it wasn't really something yet. I think when Apple came out with uh, iTunes 4.9, where you could actually listen on your iPod, that sort of, you know, shifted into a second gear. And then 2006, GarageBand came out, which allowed you to pretty seamlessly record something and submit it to Apple as a podcast. And then we'd get in their directory. And so those things really started make podcasting more accessible. I'm not a very technical person, but um, 2008, 2009, I began listening to uh, shows like Hardcore History, History of Rome, uh, 12 Byzantine Emperors. Those were the big three in the history podcasting space that really uh, caught on in a, in a big way. And they had a, quite an impact on me. And, and then there was another show called History According to Bob, that inspired me to get into this racket. You know, Bob was this uh, folksy Midwestern educator, 
you know, based in Kansas City. And he presented like world history, Western Civ, World War One, World War Two. And so I listened to it. I really liked it. And I like that format. I think it kind of, I could certainly do the same thing with Chinese history. And there was nothing out yet. Nobody was doing anything about China. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.